to our time in the Word this morning, go ahead and take your Bibles with me and turn to the book of Jeremiah chapter 1. Jeremiah chapter 1, I I have a little bit of a habit, particularly uh, when I'm preaching for Tim and have just one week to work on something, uh, of being overly ambitious, but don't get worried, we're not going to cover all of Jeremiah this morning. We're going to cover excerpts from Jeremiah this morning. Uh, But Jeremiah really has this unique ministry and I think in a lot of ways speaks to an issue that is still uh, prevalent for us today, speaks to a a heart need that we still deal with and that we do well to address in our own thinking and in our own heart. Uh, Our our passage this morning, really the the center of where we're going to be at is in Jeremiah chapter 2. Uh, and we'll, let's read through that together. You can remain seated, but Timothy, flip over. I think the next slide has it. Okay, there we go. Let, let's read through this together out loud as we, as we do this and, and hear what God has to say to Jeremiah before we dig in this morning. Jeremiah 2, starting in verse 9. Therefore, yet will I bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against your children's children I will bring charges. For pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and sea. Send to Kadar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory for what does not profit. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Let's open with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we just pray that as we spend time in your word this morning, you would move our hearts, that you would draw us to yourself, that you would help us to think more clearly about who you are and who we are in light of that reality. Lord, we just pray that you would give us hearts that really genuinely love you and have a passion for knowing you and for walking day in and day out in relationship with you. Lord, we just pray that your word would move us in a way nothing that I or anyone else can say would ever do. We thank you and praise you for this time together in Christ's precious name. Amen. Jeremiah speaks to us as one of the Old Testament prophets. And and as such, I think we need to pause for a moment and recognize that there has long been some debate over how we use the Old Testament in our own lives and decisions and churches as believers and members of the New Testament church. Do we read ourselves into every passage in every place in Israel? Is the Old Testament just historical context so that we can understand the New Testament better? How much emphasis and time should we place on the Old Testament writings and our study and personal devotions? And perhaps most of all, what do we do with the law of Moses and how does it relate to the believer? As you study through the Old Testament, those and similar questions inevitably churn around in our minds and come up in the discussion. For the most part, these are beyond the scope of our passage this morning, but I want for just a moment at the outset to to establish a little bit of a framework 
for us as modern believers and Gentiles to seek to understand and utilize the Old Testament. First and foremost, we have to understand that we are not a replacement for Israel. We as believers in the church do not replace Israel. We as America do not replace Israel. We we do not stand in Israel's stead and, and therefore cannot simply go to any passage in the Old Testament and read it and say, well, I stand exactly where Israel stood in this passage. That's a dangerous thing to do. There's a lot of things that God commands Israel that are unique to their situation there's a lot of relationship things that happen there. God has a, a number of laws that have very little to do with morality for Israel and everything to do with separating them culturally from the world around them. You know, you know laws about what you can and can't eat. Laws about not wearing garments of mixed fabrics. And we, I would hazard to say basically every single one of us is breaking that one this morning. Almost every fabric we've ever worn in our lives has had some measure of mixture in it. And so you can't just go read those passages and, and put yourself in them in place of Israel. Any attempt to make the church a direct replacement for Israel ends in all kinds of problems. We as members of the church are, though, inheritors of many of the blessings and promises that are given to Israel and through them to the world. You can't come to passages like Romans 9, 10, and 11 and read where Paul says that we are grafted into Israel and into the blessings and the promises of the Word of God and into the promises of the Messiah without recognizing that every spiritual blessing we have was first promised to Israel, and then we are joined in with them in the blessings of the Messiah. And so the Old Testament is not without anything to say to us, but we have to understand our place in it. Not as replacements for Israel, but as those who join late in time, as those who reap the blessings of the Messiah and his coming kingdom, not as replacements for Israel and the coming kingdom. So not only do we come to the Old Testament and have to recognize how we read ourselves into it, but but we also have to recognize that we come to the Old Testament and one of its greatest functions for us today is less to see the blessings that are, in most cases, spelled out for us in the church much more clearly in the New Testament but more to see the character of God and the character of man put on display throughout the ages. God's character is absolutely immutable. It does not change. What was right before God in Moses' day still remains right before God. What was sin before God in Moses' day is still a moral sin. God's character is unaltered and so those things in his people that he rewards and encourages in the Old Testament, we can rely upon that he still loves and rewards and encourages. And those things that he chastens and rebukes, we can count on that he still chastens and rebukes. His methodology for dealing with Israel varies over time. And certainly his methodology for dealing with the church is different than how he dealt with Israel. 
But the underlying character, the underlying moral reality of who God is and what is right and wrong in His eyes has not altered. Which means that as we study the Old Testament, we can gain a clear picture of the character and the personality of the great God and Savior whom we love and serve. On that basis, we as the New Testament church look back to the Old Testament and and receive it not simply as a, a series of interesting historical anecdotes, but rather as a foundation upon which we can build an understanding of who God is and how we as His people ought to relate to Him. Jeremiah comes at a particularly difficult time in Israel's history dealing with this. Our, our, our lesson this morning, our, our message this morning, starts in Jeremiah chapter 1, before the, the passage we read already, Jeremiah's times in ministry, Jeremiah's called to ministry, Jeremiah chapter 1, starting in verse 4, God speaks to Jeremiah and he says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, I formed you in the, or before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I sanctified you, I ordained you a prophet to the nations. Then said I, Ah, Lord God, behold, I cannot speak, for I am a youth. But the Lord said to me, Do not say, I am a youth, for you shall go to all to whom I send you, and whatever I command you, you shall speak. But do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have this day set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and throw down, to build and to plant. Jeremiah's ministry starts when he is a a very young man. He's a Levite and a priest who, who serves in the temple both as a priest and also serves for more than 50 years as a prophet in Israel. He serves for five decades leading into and encompassing the time when Israel's southern kingdom, Judah, we generally refer to it as, is conquered by Babylon. The city is razed to the ground and all of the nation, save only a a bare scattering, is either hauled off into captivity in Babylon for 70 years or flees to Egypt in order to escape the conquering army. Israel is left all but desolate for those next 70 years. Jeremiah's ministry consists almost entirely of warning Israel that God's judgment is coming and that it can't be turned aside. That's not exactly an easy or a popular message to preach. Many times God sends prophets and he sends them to warn a nation or his people that judgment is coming and they need to repent before it arrives on them. We remember the stories of of Jonah going to Nineveh and he turns Nineveh back from their wickedness and for an entire generation they repent and survive again. Pardon me. Many other times, Israel turns back from her sin, heeds the word of one of God's prophets, 
and gains a reprieve. But Jeremiah's message is almost uniformly, explicitly, that even if Israel repents, they're still going into captivity. That's such an unpopular message that for a good portion of his ministry, Jeremiah finds himself in jail proclaiming God's message literally through the prison bars to his scribe and friend Baruch who writes it down and then goes and posts it around the city at his own risk of life and limb because the king has outlawed outlawed preaching Jeremiah's prophetic messages and proclaiming them. Jeremiah ministers in a very difficult time. He ministers in a time where Israel has been in the land for nearly a thousand years. They have gone through the judges and that cycle of sin and rebellion and being conquered and repenting and being rescued by one of the judges and and serving God for a generation only to turn back into sin some 13 times in the book of Judges that happens. And then the kings come on the scene And Saul is a king who leads Israel far from the heart of God. David leads them back and for David's reign and much of Solomon's reign, they they serve the one true God. But by the end of Solomon's reign, his infidelity begins to lead Israel astray. And in his son's time, the nation is rent asunder. And from that time forward, it becomes a very rare thing for Israel to have a king who honors the Lord and leads them after him. Generation after generation, there's but bare moments in Israel's history where they walk in right relationship with their God and where they worship the one true God. It's much more common for them to be at odds with him, to be conquered by some enemy nation, to be under oppression because of their sin. And as Jeremiah comes onto the scene, God is about to carry out the judgment that he has warned Judah and the whole southern kingdom of for generations now. Being conquered and not simply overrun by their enemies, but being carried off into captivity. Many times had they been oppressed and conquered, but always until now, they had remained in the land. Though they were oppressed, and when the oppressors were overthrown, they had been able to rebuild and strengthen themselves in the lands that they had been given by God because they had remained there under their oppression. But this time was about to be different. Jeremiah has the unenviable job of relating the news that judgment is coming and it's both unavoidable and that for the first time in Israel's history, it would remove the southern kingdom from the land God had given them as the northern kingdom had been removed almost 150 years before by the Assyrians. The southern kingdom had watched that happen and they had felt a little bit self-righteous about it. There goes the northern kingdom. Them and their wicked kings, God's judging them. They get carried off into captivity. That's what they deserve. Little did they think that judgment was soon coming for them as well. Into that context then, Jeremiah is called. Look back at 
those verses at the beginning of Jeremiah chapter 1, God, God calls him and says, Behold, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you before you were born. I sanctified you. I ordained you a prophet to the nations. God says, Jeremiah, I have a plan for your life. By the way, what, what a tremendous declaration of the sanctity of life, even from before conception. God says, even before you were formed in the womb, I already knew who you were going to be, Jeremiah. I already had a plan for you. You were in place. You're not an accident. You're not a clump of cells that might be broccoli or a Volkswagen or who knows what. From the moment of conception, I had a plan for you. You're mine and will be my prophet. There's something of an echo of Moses' response to his call to be a prophet. God calls him and Jeremiah's response is, Ah, Lord God, I, I can't speak. Moses was 80. He couldn't very well claim to be a youth. But he said, I'm not able to speak. Jeremiah says, Lord, I'm a youth. I'm just a young guy. Nobody's going to listen to me. God says, do not say I'm a youth. For you shall go to all whom I send you and whatever I command you, you shall speak. Jeremiah, you don't have to know what to say. You don't have to command their respect because of your wisdom and your understanding. You just go and tell you what I say to tell you. In fact, overwhelmingly, Jeremiah's book of prophecy, more than any other book in the entire scripture, contains God specifically telling Jeremiah, go say this. Go tell them, thus saith the Lord. Over and over and over again, God says, look, I'm going to give you the exact words to say, you just go and say it. You repeat it to Baruch, have him publish it. You go declare it in the marketplace. You go tell it to all who will listen. Go preach it in the temple. You just go and say what I have said. Verse 8. With that promise that God would tell him what to say, comes a promise that God would be with him. He says, Do not be afraid of their faces, for I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. Jeremiah faces a ministry a little later on in the book. He'll be told by God that he will face a ministry in which he will have effectively no visible fruit. He faces a ministry in which he will preach for more than 50 years and no one's going to repent and no one's going to take heed of his message and turn back. No one's going to follow after him and become a disciple of Jeremiah. He's not going to build a megachurch. He's not going to have a great following. He's not going to have people who want to listen to him and hear him. He's going to be persecuted and attacked and thrown in prison. His life is going to be in danger over and over again. On several occasions, he has to flee outside the city and go into hiding for a period of time while he waits for things to settle down so he can go back and preach once more. God says, they're going to set their face against you, but don't be afraid of them. You just go and preach what I tell you. Verse 9, Then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said unto me, Behold, I have put my wisdom in your mouth. See, this day I have set you over the nations and over the kingdoms to root out and to pull down, to destroy and to throw down, to build and to plant. 
what a ministry God is calling Jeremiah to. He's calling Jeremiah to a ministry of rooting out and of pulling down and of destroying and throwing down. You know what that is? That's a word picture of Jeremiah being a gardener, being a vine dresser, and going into a garden patch that's been long neglected. He goes in and it's so overchoked with weeds and the walls are so beaten down and there's so much rubble everywhere that you can't make any good thing grow there anymore. And God says, before you can begin the work of planting and building again, you first have to tear out all of the bad things. You have to root out all of the idolatry. You have to root out all of the weeds and get rid of all of the the junk that's grown up in. You have to get all the rubble out of the way so that you can begin to plant and to restore. That's the state that Israel is in at this time. They have so fallen to pagan idolatry that God says they're going to be hauled out of the land. The land is going to be given a break from them and their idolatry. They're going to be torn out and rooted out and uprooted and hauled off into the Babylonian captivity. And maybe in 70 years, they'll be ready to come back and replant and rebuild. That's a ministry for Ezra and Nehemiah if you want to see what happens on the other side of the captivity. Jeremiah has a ministry that is here, not one that's going to be popular. He comes to the nation of Israel reminding them primarily of their sin and their idolatry, primarily reminding them that they have strayed far from God and that there are going to be consequences for that sin. Israel was so corrupted by her idolatry and her syncretistic mixing of cultures and pagan rituals into her worship that nothing good could grow there again until every vestige of that pagan idolatry had been rooted out. Turn back over to Jeremiah chapter 2. We pick up in verse 9, the passage we opened with this morning, where God levels his specific charges against Jeremiah. In that context of a nation that has walked so far from God, Jeremiah comes and, and he ministers again for 50 plus years. The book of prophecy that bears his name primarily speaks of his warnings to Israel, his pleas with them before they go into captivity. The book that follows immediately after it, Lamentations, is his weeping and sorrow over the destruction of Israel and Jerusalem as Jeremiah actually doesn't go to Babylon in captivity. He flees with a small contingent of Israelites to Egypt in order to escape judgment And as they're leaving the city, lamentations as Jeremiah weeping and wailing and looking on the city that is God's crown jewel brought low because of the sin of her people. God levels a number of charges against Israel throughout the course of the book, but all of them can really be summed up with and and fall into the foundation that Jeremiah speaks of here in chapter 2, verses 9 through 13. God begins and says, Therefore I will yet bring charges against you, says the Lord, and against the children's children. I will bring charges for pass beyond the coasts of Cyprus and see, send to Kadar and consider diligently and see if there has been such a thing. 
Has a nation changed its gods, which are not gods, but my people have changed their glory for what does not profit? Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord, for my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. The message here opens with God making a courtroom declaration. Therefore, because of the idolatry and the faithlessness that's described in the preceding verses, therefore, I will yet bring charges against you. That's a declaration that should strike terror in the heart of everyone who hears it. You know, you know that feeling? I'm sure all of you have a utterly clean consciences and never get that feeling. But I get this feeling sometimes, even if I know I'm not speeding, when you see the lights going in the rearview mirror, you get that feeling for a moment and you breathe a sigh of relief when he goes past and he's going for somebody else, right? Imagine the feeling when it's not just the local state trooper or the local sheriff going by, but it's God himself who says, I've got a charge to levy against you. I've got a problem with you and we're going to deal with it right now. That's a heavy thing. That weighs on the heart of a man. It's a declaration that strikes fear. The creator and the master of all things who has judged the earth with water before and will one day judge it with fire who brought Egypt, the superpower of the world at that time, to its knees in a matter of mere months in order to rescue his people out and show forth his glory. The God who showed Israel time and time and time again in the wilderness his great power and majesty. The God who brought them to a land that wasn't theirs and gave it to them lock, stock, and barrel as he had promised their forefathers. That God, who had time and again worked miracles in the scene of his people, now speaks and calls Israel to account in the courtroom of his justice. He's not some mere circuit judge who can be avoided. There are no legal loopholes through which justice can be exploited and escaped. There's no place of judgment that can be run away from. When God calls you before his throne, you come. There is no escaping him. There is no escaping his justice. The United States, while a God-blessed land in many ways, does not have a covenant with Jehovah as Israel had. And yet the God who hated sin and idolatry and wickedness in Israel still hates sin and idolatry and wickedness in ours and all other nations today. The God who calls Israel to account here still calls nations to account that rebel against him. And not just nations, but every man, woman, and child then and now will one day give an account before his great and righteous seat of judgment. And either we will be judged according to our deeds, which is not a good fate for any of us, 
or we will be judged righteous because we wear the blood of Christ. Those are the only true alternatives. None will escape that judgment when it is rendered by the Almighty, regardless of their nation, creed, gender, status, or philosophical leanings. No amount of intellectualizing will allow you to escape from standing before the holy and the righteous God someday. And Israel here stands in a particularly dangerous position. In verse 10, God suggests that you could search all of the known earth at that point and not find another nation who has done what Israel has done. He says, I've got charges to bring against you. And he says, for pass beyond the coast. Go to Cyprus and see. Go, go sail as far as you want. Go look in the other direction. Find Kedar and find, find me another nation that has thrown away their gods and exchanged them for some other gods willingly. And they don't even have real gods. So think of the irony of that. All of these nations who have false gods, who have little stone and wooden icons that they serve. In fact, Jeremiah will later on in his ministry go on to make fun of this. He, he tells this story where a man goes and he walks out in the woods and he gets away from home and he, he's having a good journey and so he stops for lunch and he cuts down a tree and out of that tree he cuts up a bunch of firewood and, and he starts a fire and he roasts his dinner and he eats his dinner over it and then he takes a part of the tree that's left and he carves a, a little graven image on it and he says to it, you are my God, this day you have created me. The foolishness of idolatry. And yet that's exactly what each and every idol that humanity has ever created created for itself amounts to. And we cling to those idols, just try and separate a people from their idols. Many of the wars in our history as humans have been fought over one set of false gods as opposed to another set of false gods. And yet Israel, who served the living and the true God, willingly exchanges him for idols. God asks, has any other nation changed its gods which are not gods? But my people have changed their glory. That thing which made Israel special was its relationship with God. You know, Israel really is just the human condition writ large. There's a level at which you can look at Israel and everything that Israel does is really just the same problems, the same hard attitudes that we have individually. It's just displayed on a national scale so you get to see how ridiculous it is on a larger scale. And Israel... who has the one true God, instead changes their glory for false gods. Israel, who has nothing special about themselves. God reminds Israel of this over and over and over again. You weren't a large people when I picked you. Abraham didn't have any children. In fact, Abraham, by all secular accounts, was too old to have children when God picked him and promised to make a great nation of him. 
You, you weren't a powerful people. You didn't even exist yet at the time. And once you did begin to exist, you were in slavery for 400 years. You weren't a people who had your own land and your own wealth and your own possessions. I gave you all of those. Everything that Israel had, every glory that they ever had, every success that they ever had was given to them by their great God and Savior. And yet they exchanged their glory. He who gave them all that they were and all that they had to whom they owed everything for all the false and the pagan gods around them. God calls on all of nature in verse 12. Be astonished, O heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, says the Lord. What other response can there possibly be in the face of such foolishness? He says, look, all, all of creation is gobsmacked, is flabbergasted, is made dumb by the incredible reality of a nation that would turn away from the one true God for pagan idols. Again, I, I hasten to say that we as a nation are not Israel but how often does that illustrate exactly the same thing we do, not only nationally, but individually? How often do we exchange our right relationship with God for whatever the idol of the moment is in our hearts and our lives? Let me be fair here for a moment. Let, let me be clear it's not very often that you meet with idolatry in quite the same flagrant fashion today in America in 2020 as you met with Israel in Jeremiah's day. I would venture to say I could visit every house in the county and I'd find precious few of them with little carved icons up on the mantel place that they worshipped every night. There might be a couple, but it'd be very few. I would venture to say that I could visit most of the backyards in the county and I wouldn't find an Ashtaroth pole that everyone worships every evening. But that doesn't mean there's not idolatry. Not many of us have the, those outward symbols of idolatry and yet we all too easily place our finances, our houses, our cars, our motorcycles, our sports, our jobs, even our families at times, ahead of a right relationship with God. Anything that takes the place that God alone deserves and has a right to in our hearts and lives is an idol. It doesn't matter what shape it is. It doesn't matter how good it is in and of itself. It doesn't matter how innocuous it is. If it has usurped the place of our worship and our time and our attention and our care that only God deserves, then it's an idol. And it's repugnant to him. God hates idolatry with a passion. Modern Americans and, and even genuine believers are all too likely to worship a whole host of things other than the one true God in spite of the fact that he alone deserves worship and honor and praise. 
in verse 13, God gives us an illustration of exactly how foolish this is and, and calls out specifically these two evils, these two sins that are at the heart of idolatry. Verse 13 Jeremiah says, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. First, Israel had abandoned God. When we commit idolatry, when we let something else creep into God's place, when we let something else dominate our, our thinking and our time and our care and our concern as only God should do, we abandon him. You know, sometimes people will say that God is far away. It's a little bit trite, but the old saying is true. God hasn't gone anywhere. It's always we who have wandered away from him. God's not escaping us. He's not going somewhere. Remember what David says in Psalm 139? Lord, if I descend into the depths of hell, if I go to the ends of the earth, if I go to the bottom of the ocean, yet you are there. God is always right there, ready for his children to return to him. It's always we who are fleeing from him, not the other way around. We abandon him. And not only do we abandon God, but look at the illustration he puts on this. He says, you, you're abandoning the fountain of living waters. We need a little historical context to understand how impactful that should be to us. Israel is, I mean, it's hard to believe, if you look outside in the last week or so, but upstate New York is actually a very lush, well-watered, well-taken-care-of place. It's a very easy-to-grow place. Crops and things thrive here. That's not how Israel was. Particularly in Jeremiah's day, Israel was nigh unto a desert. It was very desolate. Water was a, a very carefully guarded supply. Water was a, a vital resource. In fact, as you read through the tales of the patriarchs, on more than one occasion, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob end up fighting wars over who owns what well. Because a source of water was the difference between life and death for your people and your flocks and herds. God says you, you have not just a well that works, but a fountain that supplies its own water. You didn't have to dig for it. You didn't have to go searching for it. it. It's there. It bubbles up. It's ready at hand. And it's not just any fountain. It's the fountain of living water. It provides that life-giving water throughout the, the Psalms. This is equated to, this phrasing is equated to as more than just physical life, but as spiritual life. He says, you have that source of right relationship with God. You have that source of life that all men desperately need. And yet you turn away from it and wander off into the desert alone. What foolishness that is. And not only... First, have you abandoned the source of living waters, the, the fountain of living waters? But you've, to replace it, hewn yourselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. We don't have cisterns as often anymore in modern culture because we tend to have modern plumbing and we, we have good pumps and, and so you, you 
get water out of your well on demand or out of the city water supply on demand as you need it. But a cistern was particularly useful. It was usually buried in the ground and it was a large storage container where when it rained or when you were going to the effort of pumping water up out of the well, you could store it in the cistern nearby where it would be close and at hand and you could put the cover on it and keep it all from evaporating out and you would have a supply of water where you needed it at the house and not where the well had to be where you could actually get water. Because you can't just dig anywhere in a desert and get water. And so cisterns were vitally important, but there's a key distinction between a cistern and a spring or a fountain. Cisterns only hold water. They don't produce any. They keep it from leaking out. They store it for you for a while. But they don't accumulate any new water. Every bit of water that goes into that cistern, you've got to get from somewhere else and put in it. And God says, you've traded the fountain for a cistern. And by the way, you didn't even pick a very good cistern. You've got a broken cistern, so all the water you put in it leaks out. He says, that's, that's the illustration. That, that's the folly of abandoning the one true God and chasing after idols. You've left behind the God who gives life. The God who gives an opportunity to have a right relationship with Him. The God who can restore and heal our brokenness. And in its place, you've inserted something that not only can't do that, but which is an active harm to you, which drains you, which sucks you dry and destroys you. It would have been hard to come up with a more evocative illustration of the spiritual bankruptcy that Israel was engaged in. And yet history and our own lives, in fact, illustrate for us that the sinful inclinations that led Israel down this path of folly and idolatry are not unique, but are common and are at work in our lives and hearts even today. We quickly trade our traditions, our habits, our comfort zones, our favorite songs and forms and phrases for a genuine and living relationship with the one true God. You know, as independent Baptists, one of the things we kind of pride ourselves in, and I'll, I'll use that word advisedly, is that we don't have a liturgy. We, we don't, there's not a, a book someplace that tells us what passage pastor's going to preach out of on a given Sunday and, and that tells us which prayers we're supposed to pray and which songs we're supposed to sing in which order. We, we don't do that. And yet, I'm thin ice here, I would hazard to say that I have never yet spent any time in an independent Baptist church that doesn't have what amounts to a liturgy all of its own, where we have a certain number of songs that we sing and the favorite songs that we sing much more often than other songs and certain passages that we preach on more often than other passages. It might not be written down anywhere, but we fall into those habits so easily, don't we? And we begin to replace a living, an ongoing relationship with our Creator and God with a ritual and a habit. 
Sometimes those are even good habits, but as soon as we forget what the habit is supposed to be doing for us, as soon as we forget what the tradition is supposed to remind us of, it loses all of its value and it's just a tradition now. And all too often they drag us down and drag us back into a kind of paganism even within our own lives and our own churches. We kind of have a de facto liturgy of habits and traditions. And inasmuch as those things drag us away from seeing the God of Scripture, from seeking Him constantly, from hungering and thirsting after Him, they serve to drag us off into idolatry. The moment our church going becomes a habit that occupies us for a few hours on Sunday, rather than an outgrowth of a heart's desire to worship God and to grow in our knowledge of Him at every opportunity, then even this Sunday service itself can become to us in our own lives an idolatry, a mere ritual, rather than a service to God. That's a hard thing to guard against. That's something that we struggle with desperately. Malachi deals with this when he writes to Israel. On the other side of this 70 years that Jeremiah is warning of, Israel returns to the land and after that 70 years, Israel again never has an outward idolatry problem. Never again do they take up Ashtaroth poles and Balaam on the mantel place in the houses. And yet, the heart problem remains. Just as it remains today, even though we don't have those outward trappings of idolatry. In fact, when Malachi comes and he preaches to Israel, the last prophet who prophecies before the silent years and then the coming of Christ, Malachi's plea to them is, your worship is the problem. Give me your heart, not your rituals. He comes to them and he says, your sacrifices are the problem. Your going to the temple is the problem because you've made it nothing but an outward ritual, and it's a kind of idolatry. And the same thing happens to us if we're not careful. We're far less likely than Israel in Jeremiah's day to have graven images on our houses or Ashtaroth poles in our backyard, but we're every bit as likely to allow the, the things of this world to crowd in and steal the place in our heart that only God deserves. We all too easily trade the spring of living waters for broken cisterns and then we find ourselves amazed when our Christianity becomes dry and ritualistic and unable to engage the next generation. We awake one day and find ourselves disconnected and uncertain that the faith we cling to bears the amount of weight and the meaning that we thought it once did. And we often never even consider that somewhere along the way, we swapped out the source of living water for dry and broken cisterns. God's warning to Israel of their idolatry rings true in every generation. We must guard carefully, lest we allow ritual, lest we allow the things of this world, lest we allow anything at all to creep in and steal away our relationship 
with our great God and Savior. As I said, we're not going to cover everything that Jeremiah speaks of in his writings, but I want to jump ahead and leave us on a high note. Jump to Jeremiah chapter 31. This lands in the middle of his writings as they're written down, but towards the end of his life. One, one of the things you've got to realize as you read Jeremiah is that his book records itself in a thematic way. He handles themes together. It's not necessarily 100% chronological. And so sometimes you'll read a passage where Jeremiah is dealing with a particular issue and then you'll jump back in time someplace later on. And so Jeremiah 31 is actually towards the end of his ministry as he's giving them a glimmer of hope just before they depart out of the land. Jeremiah 31, pick up in verse 31. God says, Behold, The days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts, and I will be their God and they shall be my people." No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin will I remember no more. Jeremiah ministers in a time when his ministry is unwelcome. He ministers in a time where his ministry is tainted by hardship sorrow, even at times perhaps depression. He ministers decade after decade with the nation slipping over the edge of inevitable destruction and no one turning back and heeding his warning. And yet it is also a ministry that looks to the future and by God's grace promises better things yet to come. God speaks to Jeremiah in chapter 31 and he says a day is coming. Looking with our eyes as we see the whole panoply of scripture, we're able to recognize that there's actually two events in play here as he speaks about this. He talks about the second one first, the day coming will God will restore the nation of Israel and they'll no longer have to teach each other because all of them will know him. That day yet lies in our future. One of the the few great bright spots in the midst of the tribulation will be the day in which Israel finally recognizes her Messiah. That's going to be an incredible day when Israel will see him whom they have pierced and know him for their Messiah. Paul says, in that day, as though they were one man, all Israel will be saved. That'll be a great day. That day is yet coming. But for that day to happen, there's another day that had to come first. And that day we can already look on as complete. Verse 34, at the end, he says, For I will forgive their iniquity, and their sin will I remember no more. That day 
hinges upon the coming of Christ and his finished work on the cross. And that day we get to look on and rejoice and joy to them. Jeremiah's plea for the nation was that they would recognize that even in the midst of their idolatry, there was hope for those who would repent. That even as it seemed like the whole nation was turning their back ever further on God and was about to reap the consequences of that sin, there was yet hope for those who would turn back to him and who would seek his face again. And that is the same hope that we have today. We don't live in a nation like Israel that has a promise that one day all America will turn back to God. We don't have any realistic expectation that will happen, although we pray for revival. But we do have the hope that each and every soul has an opportunity if they will but hear the words of the gospel and accept Christ's work on the cross, that there is hope and there is an opportunity to come to Christ and join him in salvation. We have a hope that we can join Israel in that promise that through Christ our sin will be forgiven and remembered no more. Let's close there with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are great and a gracious God, that you are one who, even in the face of our iniquity and our idolatry, in the face of our infidelity and our unfaithfulness to you, that you still call us to repentance, that you still offer the hope of Christ's finished work on the cross, that there are none who have turned so far away from you but that you will not offer grace and mercy if they turn back. Father, we know that in and of our own hearts, that is not a choice we willingly make. And we pray that you would stir hearts and minds and draw men and women to yourself today, that they would accept the truth of the gospel while there is yet time. We thank you and praise you for your goodness and for the clarity that you give us through your word and the call that you offer. In Christ's precious name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and stand with me as